Well, as uh, Justin said, we will be in the book of James this morning. And so if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can go ahead and open to James chapter 5. And if you don't own a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand and an usher will bring around a Bible to you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home. It's Sojourn's gift to you. And so it's one of the things I love that this church does. Uh, While you're opening to the book of James, uh, let me just say, it seems like a lot has changed for Sojourn in the last few months since I was here, I think in November. Uh, Very exciting time. Y'all hired a new pastor a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Edward, which is super exciting. And uh, I'm really uh, just excited for you all, and I look forward to hearing about years of fruitful ministry as you all partner together. And then uh, last week, you all had a new preacher, uh, Theodore, preached. And uh, man, it was an awesome sermon. I don't know where he's sitting. He's somewhere. Uh, But I listened to it, man. Uh, I was really blessed by it. I think a lot of people were. And I think you can put that on your resume right behind uh, bagpipes and in front of um, leather craftsmen. So... Anyways, uh, I love seeing people get to use their gifts in new and exciting ways, and my hope is that our time, in our time this morning, many of you will be encouraged um, to use your gifts for uh, the good of others. So let's turn our attention now to the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit." This is the word of the Lord. The greatest wealth is health. At least, that's what the Roman poet Virgil thought. And although he said that some 2,000 years ago, he really captured the spirit of our age, didn't he? You and I live in a world that is completely preoccupied, completely consumed with an all-out pursuit of health. And just to illustrate this fact for you, let me draw your attention to some, to some of the financial figures for just a moment. From 1960 to 2015, the national GDP spent on health care nearly tripled to almost 18%. And to put that into perspective, that's almost four times what is spent on defense and three times what is spent on education. On top of that, consumers have spent over $100 billion on things like anti-aging procedures, creams, dietary supplements, gym memberships, and the like. 
Now, we throw on top of this the astronomically high numbers that the pharmaceutical industry spends on research and medical advancement. And now, of course, I'm not trying to say that this is all a bad thing. I mean, let's just consider the medical advancements and the technological advancements that we've achieved even in the last century. Organ transplants, respirators, blood transfusions, genetic mapping, all of these wonderful things that we can praise God for and we should praise God for. But I wonder if there isn't another side to that. I wonder if for all of this money that we spend and all of these advancements that we've made haven't given us the illusion that we have perfect control over our health. I mean, let's think about it. I think most of us operate under the assumption that if something were to go wrong with our bodies, modern medicine would have an answer for us. I think many of us, especially those of us who are on the younger side of things, operate under the assumption, perhaps even the expectation, that we are entitled to a long and healthy life. But I think deep down, we all know that this really isn't the case, is it? However, it's these very assumptions, these very expectations, when they are coupled with poor biblical interpretation, lead to a terrible misunderstanding of what the Christian faith believes and what it teaches. Our passage today is one that has been often distorted and abused to teach that our health is a gift that God is just waiting to give us. And if we simply have enough faith, we can reach out and take it for ourselves. It's a teaching that has left a great deal of people, many people have been hurt and are left brokenhearted by it. But I think as we will see this morning when we're studying this text more in depth, what we will see is that James is actually laying out for us a really beautiful model of what care and prayer should look like within the church. And so as we study this text to that end, we're going to be looking at this text in three points. Those three points are the prescription, the medicine, and the cure. The prescription, the medicine, and the cure. And as we're going through these three points, I'll be laying out for you what James does teach. I'll also address a a couple common errors that we have when we approach this text. And finally, I'll also be sort of teasing out some application questions for us as we go. So let's jump into our first point together. First point, the prescription. And here I'm looking at verses 13 and 14. Now, this first point that we're looking at, it's a really important point. It's a foundational point to understanding this passage. However, it's very easy for us to miss. And that point is this. James prescribes for us church membership as the means by which we are cared for in the Christian life. James prescribes church membership as the means by which we are cared for. In other words, the underlying assumption for James is that if you are a Christian, you are living the Christian life in the context of committed relationships in a local church. So let me tease this out for us here in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, 
James contrasts two people, the cheerful person and the suffering person, one who should sing praise and one who should pray. Now, here's the thing. James is not saying either you're the person who is cheerful and who should therefore praise or you're the person who is suffering and should therefore pray. That's not the point. The point here is that you and I will need the ministry of other Christians in every season of life. Now, I want you to think about this. You and I, when we start to live life alone in isolation, we have a tendency to drift to extremes, don't we? Think about when we're in seasons of cheer, when things are going really well for us when circumstances are going really well for us. We are really good at praising God for the things that we have, praising God for blessings. But in many ways, we start to become delusional. We almost start to expect that the good things will continue. And what's one of the first things that starts to disappear from our life when things are going really well? It's prayer. That feeling of constant dependence on God, that feeling that we need to rely on God every day for all that we have, for all that he is, it starts to fade. So we're really good at praising, but often we're not good at praying. But think about the other end of the spectrum. What happens if we suffer alone in isolation? We start to become bitter, jaded, Despair overtakes our hearts. We play the victim, and we can't help but think that there is no longer any hope for us in this life. And so when we suffer, we tend to be all right at praying, maybe for our circumstances to change. But what, again, what's one of the first things that disappears from our life? It's praise. We lose hope. We forget that there's a real reason to praise God even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So isn't it interesting that James doesn't say, if you're cheerful, don't forget to pray. And if you're suffering, don't forget to praise. No, instead what he says is, if you're cheerful, praise. If you're suffering, pray. Why? Because the cheerful person is to serve as a reminder to the one who is suffering that there's real reason to hope in this life, that we can continue to praise God even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And the suffering person is to serve the cheerful person in that they remind the cheerful person to continue to pray, to continue to rely on God even when things are going really well. And so you see, in every season of life, we are to bring the ministry, ministry of Christ to other believers. This requires that we are in committed relationships with other Christians. Now, I think we see this pretty clearly in verse 13, but in verse 14, it's even more explicit. Because in verse 14, James says, how about the sick person? The sick person. This is really the person we'll be dealing with the rest of the morning. But he says, if you're sick, call upon the elders to come and pray. 
So you see, James' assumption is that if you're sick, you are in a local church with elders, pastors, who you can call upon, who know you, who can come and minister to you, who can come and pray for you when things are not going well, when you're sick, when you're bedridden. The underlying assumption for this passage, the prescription, is that we are members of a local church. And this really takes us to the first error that I think we commonly have when we approach this text because I think there is a, um, there tends to be a sort of individualistic undercurrent in many churches and for many Christians. There's sort of this idea that Christianity is all about my relationship with God. And that's fine to an extent But the problem with that view is that it doesn't take into account that when we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we necessarily have a relationship with other Christians because we're adopted into the family of God. And so this whole sort of Christianity is a solo adventure with me and Jesus thing, it can really lead us to great error when we approach the Bible. And so we might approach the Bible. If we're reading the Bible in this way, we come to the text and we say, "Uh uh-huh, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray. So I should pray. Well, of course you should pray. But is that what James is saying here? No. James is saying there are going to be seasons of your life where you're going to need to call upon the ministry of the church to care for you, the ministry of other Christians to come and care for you. So a couple quick application questions for us to tease out. The first question is for, uh, for those of you who are church members. I think there's a tendency for us to think of church membership simply as a duty, Maybe it's something that we should do or something that we've always done because our family's done it. But how would our view of church membership change if we saw it not so much as a duty, but as a means of God's grace, whereby he ensures that we're cared for in every season of life? How would that change our view of gathering with the church on Sunday? How would that change our view of being committed to a community group or committed to a Bible study in the church? I think it's something for us to think about. And then a question for those of us maybe who aren't church members. Maybe you uh, are a new Christian and you're still figuring out what what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be involved in a church. I understand that. Maybe you're in a season of transition and you're kind of moving around and so you haven't found a church to be committed to. Again, I understand that. But what about for those of you who have been a Christian for any length of time and haven't yet taken this step of church membership? I'm not trying to beat anyone over the head about it, but just want you to think about it. A season is coming where you are going to need to call upon the ministry of other Christians. And I really just hope you're thinking about that before that day comes and you don't have this means of God's grace to call upon in your life.
So, a couple things for us to think about. So, I think we've seen that in this passage, the underlying assumption for us is that we are committed to a local church, that we are members of a local church. And so now I want to spend time thinking about this third person that James introduces, this sick person. And this takes us to our second point, the medicine. The medicine that we need when we're in seasons of sickness. And that medicine that James gives us is twofold. He says, when you are sick, call upon the elders to one, be anointed with oil, and two, to be prayed for. Anointing with oil and prayer. Now, before we get into this point, I want to be emphatic about something. What I am not saying, what James is not saying, and what the Bible never says is that you should not pursue physical medicine, okay? It's not what I'm trying to say. However, what I do think James is saying to us this morning is that perhaps we need to consider sometimes there is a spiritual side to our illnesses. Sometimes we should consider that perhaps there is a spiritual cause in our sickness or our illness. And so that's really what we're thinking about here as we're looking at this text. And so James says, the sick person should call upon the elders to be anointed with oil and to be prayed for. And so let's look at this first one, being anointed with oil in verse 14. Now, I think many of you probably know that being anointed with oil in ancient times was often a uh, used for medicinal purposes, so open wounds or rashes or skin diseases or something like that. And that was common, but that's not what's going on here in this passage. Because the other common use of being anointed with oil was a symbol whereby we set someone apart for a special or a holy purpose. It was where we set someone apart for a holy purpose within the community. And so often kings or priests or rulers, they were anointed with oil to signify to the community they were being set apart for this holy purpose in the community. And so when James says anoint someone with oil, it's a symbol where someone is set aside, where the leaders of the church set someone aside to, symbol, to be a symbol to this person but also to be a symbol to the church where we're saying that we are petitioning God for special care, for special mercy in this person's time of need. It's a, really an act of encouragement. We're encouraging this person that we've set them apart to petition God for this special care, for special grace and mercy, for a special act of healing in their life. Now, the principle here is more important than the practice. Some people still anoint with oil today and some don't. But the point here is that when people are sick in our community, are we setting them apart in this way? You know, we can do this in multiple ways, whether it's pastoral prayers on Sunday mornings, email chains, prayer chains, however we want to do it. But James is saying that when people are sick, we should set them apart to petition God on their behalf for special care, for a special act of healing in their life. And then James introduces the second act of medicine. He says, 
When someone is sick, they should be prayed over. And so in verse 15 and 16, he says, the elders come, pray over the one who is sick, and then things get a little bit complicated. He throws a wrench in the whole issue because he says, a prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and will raise them up. Therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's a couple issues here that we need to iron out. But what I want you to know is that in verse 15 and 16, James is really taking the same principle and he's applying it twice. And so I think if we spend our time trying to understand verse 15, we'll really understand verse 16 as well. It's kind of like, you know, in college, there's introductory courses and application courses. And so if you understand the principle in the, in the introduction course, you'll know how to apply it in different situations. And that's kind of what's going on here. So if we spend our time on verse 15, I think we'll understand verse 16 as well. So in verse 15, James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and will raise them up. There's a temptation for us to think that James is only talking about a spiritual healing here. And certainly these words in this verse could be used to refer to a spiritual healing. But in order to make that work in this verse, we have to play a kind of hopscotch with the text. Here's a good rule for us to know in biblical interpretation. Never make a word say something that its context doesn't call for. Never make a word say something more than its context needs it to. And so in this context, James is clearly talking about someone who is physically sick. And the image he has here is of someone who is bedridden. They are laying down in their bed in this state of sickness. The elders come and pray over this person. And when they are healed, they are raised up again to vitality and to new health. That's the image James has for us here. Very clearly, he's talking about a physical sickness, a physical illness. Now, does God still heal our physical sicknesses and our illnesses today? Yes, and amen, and we should pray for that fervently. Is that what James is talking about here? Yes. But this is where the issue comes in, isn't it? Because on the surface, it might look like James is guaranteeing that a prayer that has enough faith guarantees healing. But is that really what he's saying? Let's take a step back and look what James is saying in its context. In verse 15, at the end of the verse, James says, And if a person has committed sins, they will be forgiven. If. You see, if you have your Bibles out, and if you highlight or star or underline, whatever you want to do, I want you to highlight that word because this is an important word in this verse. Because in this context, James is not drawing a direct one-to-one relationship between sin and sickness. James is not saying every time you are sick, there is a direct sinful cause to it. James is saying if 
there is a sin that has led to sickness, it will be forgiven and there will be healing. If. That's important for us to know. So that even in this immediate context, there is not this immediate one-to-one relationship between sin and sickness. But let's take a step back and take a look at sort of a higher level of what James teaches. Go back to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 3, what does James say? You do not have because you do not ask. You see, James's audience was not an audience that prayed regularly, and they just needed to be encouraged to pray with a little bit more faith. That's not what was going on. The problem for James' audience was that they weren't praying at all. And they needed to be reminded, they needed to be encouraged that prayer is effective when it is prayed for with the right motivations and it's in accordance with God's will. And that's really what the rest of the Bible teaches on this subject, isn't it? Let's take a step back again and get sort of a 30,000-foot view of what the Bible teaches on this subject. There are times in the Bible where there is a relationship between sin and sickness. There are times where there is not. Think about in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, some of you are taking the Lord's Supper in an improper way, which is why some of you are sick and have even died. So in his context that Paul is speaking to, a very clear relationship between sin and sickness. In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. Very clear relationship between sin and this man's illness. But other times, there is not a relationship between the two. Remember the book of Job. The author goes out of his way to tell us that Job is a sinless and righteous man. And yet he suffered tremendously. And it was the great error of Job's friends as they kept assuming that there was some sort of relationship between Job's sin and the suffering he was going through. Or remember in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man and the disciples, they come to him and they say, Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man sinned nor his parents that he was born blind. So you see, sometimes there is a relationship between the two, and sometimes there is not. And so when we come back now to the book of James, when James says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, this prayer of faith that he is talking about is a prayer which will petition God fervently for healing. which has confidence to confess sins, but all the while acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things. It's a prayer which petitions God, confesses sins, and acknowledges his sovereignty over all things. 
So I think we can see why James says that the sick person should call upon the elders, the pastors of a church to pray, not because elders and pastors have a special gift of healing and not because elders and pastors have a special gift of prayer, but generally because they're the ones in a community that are recognized with the ability to pray in this way. They're an example, a model for us of what this looks like. But then James takes this principle from verses 14 and 15 and he applies it to the whole church in verse 16. He says, on account of this, therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. In other words, the church should always be in a state of confessing sins to one another. We see again how this idea of church membership is important in this passage. The church should always be in a state of confessing sins to one another in case if there are sicknesses that have been caused by sins. And if there are, we may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This prayer of a righteous person, very similar to the prayer of faith. It's the prayer of God's people in the church. It's the prayer of a person that knows they can petition God fervently for healing. that has confidence to confess our sins. And all the while, it acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things. So again, a question of application for us before we move on. If you're anything like me, when something goes wrong, when I'm sick, just give me the pills, you know? Just give me the pills and I'll be good. I, I, I want to rush to the doctor and everything, make everything better. But how would this principle change our prayer life when we're sick? How might this change our relationship with other Christians in the community? What if, when we were sick, we gave pause to pray and to confess our sins? What if when we got home from the doctor, we called a friend, a brother or sister in the church to pray with them and to confess our sins? Husbands, what would this look like to lead your family in a time of prayer and confession when someone in the family is sick? Something for us to think about. I, I think this principle could actually really change and shape our prayer life. I know it would really shape mine if I sought to apply it more in my everyday life. Now, I think this takes us as well to the next great error that many have when approaching this text. And the second error is really related to the first because we've already said that there's a tendency for us to approach this text in a very individualistic way, as if it's sort of just about me and what I have to do. And you see, when we approach the Bible in that way, it's not before too long that we don't start to think, huh, I wonder what I have to do to get something out of this God character. And when we live in a culture, when we live in a society that's in this all-out pursuit of health, that thing we often want from God 
is our health. It's our healing. And so, we create a God of our own imagination. One that will bend to our will. One that will do what we want if we're good enough. If we're sinless enough. If we just have enough faith. And this idol that we create for ourselves, like any other idol, will eventually crush us. It will. It will crush us. And so let me try and bring this home for you with a short story. Um, Recently, for the last several months, I've been serving um, weekly in the hospital. I've been volunteering in the children's cancer unit. And so every week, I spend a few hours with um, the children and their families. And it's, a, it's an environment, it's an area that I'm still very uncomfortable in. It's not something that's normal for me. And um, so when I started doing this a few months ago, I'll never forget my first day on the unit. Um, I walk in and I'm nervous and I'm feeling awkward because I have no idea what to do. And uh, I remember I walked up to the patient board and uh, to see all the patients I'd be visiting that day. And I remember looking up to the first line, you know, and I saw name, age and gender, three years old, female. And I just remember the weight of that reality. This poor little three-year-old girl in here with cancer. And I know I must have had a visible look of disbelief or shock on my face because a nurse walked by and said to me, oh yeah, she's having a really hard day. You probably won't be able to do anything for her, so you might not want to visit her. And in that moment, out of my sort of fear and not knowing what I was going to do, I wanted to use that as an excuse not to go visit her. But then I sort of had an attack of conscience and I realized, no, you know, this is why I'm here, to spend time with these kids and their families. And so I sort of mustered up some courage and I went and I walked over to the door and even before I got to the door, I could hear her crying. And so I knocked on the door and I peeked my head in and it was like in that moment, time stood still as it allowed me to sort of get a picture and take it all in what I was seeing. The first thing that caught my eye was that this little girl was wearing, you know, those sparkly stick-on earrings that little girls wear before their ears get pierced. And then the picture sort of widened as I saw that she had wires and IVs coming out of every limb of her body. And she was crying. And then time sort of sped up as I saw the father almost rush at me. And he said, oh, thank you. I've been waiting for someone to come. I need to go check on her food. Will you stay here with her? Yeah, uh, I'll stay here. Uh, You know, I'll stay. I was, you know, I I was very awkward. And and so he almost sort of rushes out of the room and leaves me here with this three-year-old girl. So it was all I could do. You know, I sort of pulled out the playbook of, uh, you know, what to do when a child is crying that I learned when I was in children's ministry, you know, uh, sort of everything I know what to do. And so I took her toys and I started doing little funny things with them, trying to get her to laugh, and she wants nothing to do with it. 
And then I take her sparkly paints and I start painting my face. And so I have like a pink nose and green circles on my cheeks. I'm kind of like dancing like a clown trying to get her to laugh. And she's just sort of swatting at me. She wants nothing to do with me. After about 10 minutes of this, I think she was growing tired of crying all day. She lays over on her side and just starts quietly sobbing to herself. And so it was all I could do in that moment but to just rub her back and quietly pray for her. And so as I was doing that, I look over at the nightstand next to me and I see a book sitting there. The Healing Promises of Jesus, written by a very famous health and wealth pastor. In that moment, I was so angry because I know what this guy teaches. And some of you might say, well, Ben, did you read the book? No, um, it didn't grace my presence, but I did go to his website to see what this guy has to say about the healing promises of Jesus. And sure enough, your health is a gift that God is just waiting to give you. And then he says this, Jesus died for your healing. Look at me. That is not why Jesus died. Jesus died so that you and I might be reconciled to God and enjoy all of him, and have all of him forever, regardless of our physical state in this life. Now, answer me this question. What happens to these parents if their poor baby girl doesn't make it? What happens? They show up to church next Sunday. Oh, your, your little girl didn't make it? Where was your faith? Where was your faith? You failed her. That's cruel. That's wicked. That's ungodly. And the great reality is that many of our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors have been crushed by this teaching. And they are even now carrying around with them the shame and the condemnation that comes with it. And you and I have the privilege and the joy of being able to take to them the hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel who rids us of our shame who rids us of our condemnation. Now, I want to take a step back again, coming to this text. Because if we stop here, if we stop here in this text, as we've understood it so far, you know, that we minister to each other in every season of life, which is good, that we call upon the ministry of others when we're suffering or when we're sick, that's good. 
We call upon elders to pray. That's good. To an extent. But here's the problem if we stop there. Our faith is a weak thing. It is. It's human. It's imperfect. We doubt. Our faith will fail. Though our flesh and our heart may fail, right? Maybe that's not you today. Maybe you've come in this morning feeling very strong in your faith. You're in a season of walking with the Lord and things are going well for you. Maybe that is you today. Maybe you've come in and you're barely hanging on by a thread. Wherever you are, I promise you, a day is coming where our faith will be weak, where we will doubt, where we will, where our faith will fail. When that diagnosis comes, when you get that phone call, when you're driving home one night and wake up the next morning in the hospital, what then? Where is our hope and our confidence then? Where is our hope then to pray a prayer of faith? Where is our hope and our confidence then to confess our sins to one another? The answer is, left to ourselves, there is none. Left to ourselves, there is no hope. Not only is our faith weak, but the Bible teaches us in places like Isaiah chapter 59 that on account of our sins and our iniquities, the Lord hides his face from us and he does not hear us. So where is our hope for our prayers to even be heard? Again, left to ourselves, there is none. There is no hope. Unless, unless we have the perfect prayers of a perfectly righteous man interceding for us on our behalf. And friends, you and I have such a one. This takes us to our last point, the cure. The cure that we all need to make our ministry to one another effective. The ministry, our prayers the confession of our sins, the hope that we have to make all of those things effective is the powerful and perfect prayers of Jesus interceding for us on our behalf. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. James gives us the example of Elijah, and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like very much like ours. If you read his narrative in First and Second Kings, he doubted. He despaired. He had depression. He was not a sinless man. And yet, James says, he prayed and the heavens were shut and it did not rain. And then he prayed again three and a half years later and the heavens were opened as it rained again. 
Why did God answer Elijah's prayer? Was it because Elijah had perfect faith? Was it because he was a sinless and righteous man? No. He answered Elijah's prayers out of grace to him, just like he answers our prayers out of grace. You see, because there was another man with a nature very much like ours, Jesus Christ. Yet, he was perfectly righteous and without sin. And he prayed perfect prayers of faith. And on the eve of his death, he prayed such a prayer. And he said, Lord, if there be another way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And then this perfect prayer of faith was answered in the way that all of our prayers should be. Silence. And the next day, the skies darkened and the heavens were shut. And there between heaven and earth hung this perfectly righteous man who prayed perfect prayers of faith. And he died. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he was raised from the grave and now sits at the right hand of God to make intercession for you and I daily. 1 John 2.1 says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He lives to intercede for us and is praying for us even now. He was turned down once, but he will never be turned down again. We can trust that he is always praying for our good, for our holiness, and for our joy in him. We can know that he is praying everything we would pray if we knew everything that he knew. That means sometimes we pray what Jesus prays, and that is a very powerful an effective prayer. Other times we do not pray what he prays, only when it's something bad for us. But we can trust that he is not only praying for our good, even now, but we can also trust that even when our faith is weak, it does not matter because we have a strong and perfect Savior. And we can trust even in our moments of greatest weakness, that he is praying for us and that the Father always hears him. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you hear us because of Jesus. And we thank you that you have sent your spirit into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. Your spirit which has illumined us, illumined our hearts to the truth of your word. We ask that this truth as we go out from here would transform our lives, would transform the way we live not only in relationship with you, 
but also the way in which we live relationship with one another. Help us to minister to one another in our great times of need, always looking to you as the one who is sovereign over all things. You are our hope, our joy, and our confidence. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.